The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. We're live from Davos at the World Economic Forum. I'm Jeff Cutmore. And I'm still Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Chinese annual GDP growth slows sharply, notching the second worst showing since the Cultural Revolution, while the population shrinks for the first time in six decades. The Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez tells CNBC the EU has something to learn from America when it comes to fighting inflation, adding he hopes a trade war can be avoided. This is something that is, uh, I would say, mandatory for the US administration and also for the European Union as a whole and member states. This is what we've been advocating. But uh, apart from that, I think that internally we have some homework to do. Polycrisis and fragmentation risk are the main warnings at Davos as the IMF says the developing world is falling further behind. We're going to speak to the managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Gorgieva. That's live on Squawkbox this morning. And two-thirds of global chief economists tell the World Economic Forum they expect a recession within 12 months, whilst fresh research from auditor PwC shows CEO confidence at a more than 10-year low. We're actually going to speak to the PwC chairman, Bob Moritz, in a couple of moments' time. And I'm Juliana Tattlebaum. Also coming up on the show, the Bank of Japan kicks off its two-day policy meeting with the yield on the 10-year JGB above its 0.5% ceiling for the third straight session, while speculation swirls as to who will fill the shoes of Governor Kuroda. So welcome to our programming here once again from the uh, World Economic Forum here in Davos. I think it's the first time, isn't it, we've been back uh, in a January since, for, for some years now. Since everyone got COVID here at West <laughs> in, in January 2020. I mean, Basically. despite a lot of uh, lobbying from us and other CEOs and people, uh, we, we couldn't get it moved to the spring uh, time frame again, could we? So we're back with yeah. the, the 84 layers on. But do you yeah. know what? This is so wet. We've already, and you said it in your headlines already, yeah. we've got a new buzzword. It is so wet, isn't it? And that is polycrisis. Right. I mean, everyone's been talking about a confluence of crises uh, and all the obvious stuff that we're going to talk about extensively over the next few days. But but Weth have, 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 have neatly in a nutshell put it into a polycrisis. So I don't know about you, but uh, I feel I've already over the word. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. And it's interesting that uh, all of these surveys as they're coming in at the moment do seem to be fairly negative on the outlook for the rest of the year. But I think what's fascinating about the, the PWC one, and we're going to talk about that shortly with Bob Moritz, is that companies are clearly focused on cutting costs, but they're not focused on cutting jobs. And this whole wow. question of labour hoarding is one that I think um, is interesting and is a feature at the moment of the way companies seem to want to run their businesses going forward. I guess it just depends how bad things actually get on the business front. Unless 
unless you're in the technology sector, in which case there's a hell of a lot of jobs being cut as well, actually. We saw yeah. these big bursts of it quite recently, Amazon and other places as well. So very interesting what you said there, especially when you look at some of the jolts data and the, and the overall employment data, which looks stunningly robust. Let's talk about growth as well. Chinese annual GDP has marked one of its lowest readings on record, excluding 2020's COVID hit. 2022 saw the weakest growth since 1976, the end of the Cultural Revolution. GDP growth for the year came in uh, better than expected at 3%, although that is still shy of the target rate of around 5.5% and a long way off 2021's 8.4%. Yeah, very interesting. The backdrop this morning uh, to our coverage is that China's population shrank by around 850,000 people last year to 1.4 billion. That is the first time the population has fallen in six decades. Now, we can talk about the one-child policy and all that stuff that was set in motion decades ago, but the UN now expects China's population to shrink by 109 million by 2050. That is three times previous forecast. Now, many point to, as I say, the country's one-child policy, which ended in 2015, as well as high education costs, which put many Chinese off having children. Well, China's uh, zero COVID policy and subsequent reopening has had an outsized impact on the global economy. We've been speaking to uh, business leaders here on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum event in Davos to get their take. Because China exerts real economic influence all over the world. Um, You've got two and a half years of pent-up demand. Um, You've got a population who's both ambitious, educated and hungry to get on and do things. So I'm I'm not in the basket where I'm really deeply concerned about recession or depression. If if parts of the world go into a recession, I I think it'd be short-lived. And I think China in itself, but also North America, will come into some pretty strong tailwinds during this decade. China is in a gross recession at the moment, quite clearly, driven by COVID, the pandemic, but also I think the internal consumption of China, plus the effect of now a slowing economy across the world, has its impact. China coming back into the global market in earnest and supply chains functioning more efficiently will help bring inflation down. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, clearly, I mean, this, this is overwhelmingly is a positive. Well, stay tuned. Uh, we've got a couple of packed days ahead, <laughs> one or two panels as well. A um, lot of programming coming your way, including interviews, right, with the CEOs of Allianz, UBS, Standard Chartered, Ericsson and Naftagas, uh, as well as the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, uh, German finance minister, Christian Lindner, and the Polish president, Andrzej Duda. Uh, do not miss those first on CNBC interviews. So moving on, do not miss my panel as well on financial innovation later this morning at 8.30 CET, uh, including the Saudi finance minister and the CEOs of State Street and PayPal. So uh, a pretty high profile panel to kick myself off anyway. Uh, The Spanish prime minister, meanwhile, Pedro Sanchez, says Europe needs to learn and reform its policies to be able to tackle inflation across the block more effectively. Now, speaking first on CNBC to uh, Karen and myself, uh, he discussed the challenges of reforms, especially in what is an election year in Spain. 
we uh, implemented very strong uh, structural reforms with the dialogue and also with agreement of uh, social uh, actors, uh, of course, uh, business associations and uh, trade unions, labor reform, pension reforms. And uh, on the other hand, of course, uh, we are uh, devoting uh, most of these public uh, uh, funds to uh, all these structural reforms. So, you know, I think that uh, in this very uh, uncertain context, the economic context uh, within the European Union due to this uh, war in Ukraine, I think that the achievements and the positive, uh, mm, uh, let's say, economic development of uh, Spain is uh, one of our major assets. So, you know, we're confident uh, on our um, economic growth, uh, the uh, deployment of uh, job creation. So far, what we're witnessing is that still remain a very strong job creation in Spain, also uh, throughout Europe. And we'll see what happens in this in this year. But, but, but it's very interesting. One of the pillars of that that you just mentioned was the COVID recovery plan. Well, of course, since the COVID recovery plan, We've seen the most devastating war we've seen in Europe since 1945, which is ongoing. We've seen the cost of living crisis, which is ongoing. Uh, interest rates, the cost of money has gone up. Spaniards and Europeans are really, really suffering as well. Have those COVID recovery funds just been overwhelmed by events and are just not enough to sustain growth? Not at all. I think that these uh, COVID funds and next generation funds gave us the tools in order to give a positive response to this economic crisis because we are devoting, I would say, 80% of these 160 billion euros for the next years on digital transition and uh, ecological transition. Just to give you uh, some figures, you know, thanks to these funds, what we are achieving is uh, uh, transforming Spain into the fifth economic economy in the world on, uh, on the wind production, uh, the eighth on um, um, renewable energy. So, you know, we are transforming and modernizing our economy. Also on digital, we are trying to attract uh, investments and global companies on semiconductors and, and chips. Uh, this is what we did and we, we tried to develop since last year here also in Davos. And on the other hand, uh, so far we already um, approved uh, before our national parliament five packages in order to at uh, the domestic level to respond to this uh, economic and energy crisis. And uh, the uh, results and the outcome of these packages and also the reforms that we are asking, and we've been very vocal since the beginning at the European Union uh, level, is that we reduce in five months five points of our inflation rates. We in Spain have the uh, lowest inflation rate of the European Union, and this is thanks to our uh, responses at national level, but also other issues that we achieve at, na at European level, such, such as the uh, Iberia, Iberia, Iberian mechanism. Mm -hmm. Can I dig a little bit further into the European fiscal policy? Because the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has demanded a response to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. He wants Europe to draft its own legislation because, uh, simply put, European companies are now finding it more appealing to invest in the United States. How necessary is the legislation and when is it coming? So I think, first of all, it's good news that, you, that the United States uh, is engaged with this ecological transition. They, they are the first uh, economic uh, uh, power, uh, so to say, worldwide, and this is good. Second, I think that uh, after the, the war in Ukraine, 
What we need to do is to uh, get closer, both regions, the United States and also the European Union. So I think it's important the negotiation process that we are now uh, within this committee, together European Union and the US, uh, trying to reach an agreement that uh, it could be worth for both sides. And also I think that uh, from our side, the European Union side, we need to learn and we need to reform uh, some uh, internal aspects of our in industrial policy, such as the state aid, uh, reducing bureaucracy, uh, and trying to send a message for the industry worldwide that is uh, Europe and, of course, Spain is a good place to, to locate and, and to, to develop all this. Prime Minister, this is all sounding very civilised, but the response from Europe has been slightly less civilised. The, the Belgian uh, Prime Minister the other week was calling this a very aggressive campaign from the Americans here to steal away European investment. The French president's not happy with the moves either. Could we see a trade fight brewing between the United States and Europe because of not. this policy? I hope not. Uh, I think that uh, we need to, to have that dialogue to reach an agreement. Uh, I think that this uh, war uh, also shows us the importance of unity uh, on the defence side, but also on the economic side uh, within the Western uh, countries. And this is something that is, uh, I would say, mandatory for the US administration and also for the European Union as a whole and member states. This is what we've been advocating. But uh, apart from that, I think that internally we have some homework to do. And this homework means how do we reduce bureaucracy, how do we review our state aid policy, uh, and how do we uh, give a common response to common challenges that we have within the European Union. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Nearly 75% of chief executives think that global economic growth will decline this year, according to a new survey from PricewaterhouseCoopers. Confidence among global CEOs is at an all-time low, with 40% predicting their organisations will not be viable in the next decade if they do not innovate. Um, let's talk to Bob Moritz about this. Uh, Bob joins us from uh, PwC, of course. Uh, Bob, really nice to see you. Um, this 40% number is very arresting. My question would be, is this about interest rates and the cost of capital and debt-laden businesses going out of business? Or is this about disruption and the way that these business models may not be viable because they've been overtaken by new trends? So it's a couple of things, actually, and I'll bring it to life with some examples. It is a combination of issues, all issues of which the CEOs know. 
So this is not new information to them in terms of what's driving this concern about the long-term viability. It's the combination of all of these factors coming together and the economic implications of that. So let's bring it to life for you. While it's 40% around the world, it actually has great variability depending where you are in the world. China, for example, is almost 70%. It's driven primarily by a concern about energy costs and the transformation they have to go through as they think the next decade coming off of coal. If you're sitting in Brazil, it's actually much less. Why? Because the technology has not transformed businesses down there that much. Cost of labor is cheaper, price of technology much higher. They know they're going to have to pay that piper at some point in time from a technology spend perspective, which will have economic implications to it. So the nuances, region by region, country to country, very important to dissect. And how do I manage through that with economic viability? And will my customers pay the prices? Yeah, that's fascinating. So there's a lot of variability in the reasons that they're giving at this point. But the the other headline, uh, which we mentioned in the read here, this 75% number, I mean, again, uh, sorry, 73% number. Again, that's a very big headline grabbing figure. Um, To what extent do you think that reflects a decision making process subsequently? That means jobs are going to go, costs are going to be cut businesses are going to reshape and downsize. The 73% number on the pessimism on the economy is actually the highest since 2008 and 2009. The difference in 2008 and 2009, no one saw it coming and no one could figure out how long it was going to last and how do I manage through that? So a lot more uncertainty. Thereby, in 2008 and 2009, the CEOs had much less confidence they can manage their way through it. This year, they're actually more confident in their own ability to manage their way through this stuff. Now, what are they doing? Absolutely cutting cost. What's interesting is 60% of the CEOs have said, I'm not going to reduce headcount. Now, why is that? 70% of the CEOs have said, my attrition level over the next year or two is going to remain the same of what I've seen the past couple of years, even with a slowing economy, which comes back to this point of, has the power relevant to employee mobility going back to the employers in a slowing economy where people are searching for jobs? Those with skills? The answer is no. So you're going to still have to pay wages, benefits, and upskill those people to keep them entertained. So they're going to have to find cost savings, redeploy them back into people, and redeploy them into diversifying your businesses. Bob, I don't want to turn this back at the consultancies, but has there been a collective failure of PwC plus your your peers in the industry to prepare companies for this? You'll pay vast amount of fees to prepare people for what's called a cycle. Now, obviously, the central banks got rid of the cycle for a certain amount of time, but it was always going to come back with a vengeance, however it came back. And I don't want to be critical of the consultancy, but you're there and paid a vast amount of money to prepare these companies. If 40% of them don't feel prepared to be able to survive another year, that's a failure. Yeah. So first, let's talk about the 40%, right? It's over the next 10 years. I don't think it's a failure of the consulting organizations. It's actually the question of how do they execute and get the outcomes they're looking for? So one of the things that we have been focusing on relevant to our strategies, how do I actually focus on trust and the sustained outcomes that companies are trying to achieve? Because what's happening, and you guys have seen this and you report on this, I do an M&A deal, I don't get the ROI that I'm looking for. I do a large spend on technology transformation and I spend a ton of money trying to put in a new system. I don't get the ROI and the better information from that. So how do we actually turn the execution into real results that's financially beneficial and societally beneficial as well as we think about climate, social issues, and other aspects like that? That's where the challenge is. And that's where the other data points coming through the CEO survey is how equipped are the senior leadership teams to drive in this environment? And that's where you probably have seen a little bit of a pendulum swing. Last year, we had too much confidence in the CEOs. This year, it's swung the entirety on the other side. The question is, how are their management teams able to manage through the uncertainty, the stress, and navigate through the gray zones? Um, 
I'm going to ask you a different kind of question, and this is about China. And there's a headline this morning, many headlines about China this morning, but one of them that caught my eye was that you don't feel confident enough to remain the auditor of Evergrande as well. Is there a huge problem still in actually mark-to-marking the value of Chinese property companies? And if so, are we anywhere near reaching a trough in this crisis in China. Yeah, I can't comment specifically on the client matter, but let's step back and talk about China specifically. It's been interesting to see the swings. I talked about the CEO swings relevant to optimism versus pessimism. You've got the swings in China now relevant to what President Xi and the country did a couple of years ago, tightening up the market relevant to monetary policy. Now coming back and say, I've got a problem in the real estate market. I've got a problem with my domestic agenda. So you're going to see these swings, which is going to cause concern in terms of which companies are viable in that organization and in that country right now, and particularly the financial services sector, the technology sector, and the real estate sector are the ones that are going to be most problematic or on watch in terms of, okay, where is the viability of those organizations? Coming back to China, you actually see them much more concerned and relevant to what I'll call the pessimism on the economy, but actually more optimistic on the domestic agenda and their ability to actually grow in China. It's not surprising based upon they're coming out of COVID, so they feel good it's opening up a little bit more so. A lot of policies actually incenting more economic behavior. And the world's watching to say not only what's happening in China domestically, but what will China now do globally? Because they used to do Belt and Road. They used to have a lot of investment around the world. The question is, is that going to sustain itself? All right. There's many more questions. We'll have to leave it for another day, Bob. Nice to see you, sir. Great to see you guys. Thank you very much indeed for your time. And uh, we'll catch up on another occasion. Bob Moritz, the chairman of PWC. Uh, Ukraine's allies are still uh, seeking to forge greater unity at Davos as uh, Russia's invasion of the country approaches its one-year mark. Now, speaking to CNBC, the president of Latvia, Egils Levitz, says more sanctions are needed in order to deter Russia's offensive. Serious uh, sanctions from European Union, from United States, from Canada, from other uh, uh, democratic states. Uh, but there is still potential to increase uh, sanctions. Uh, uh, I, I, I think that the uh, European Union will also uh, prepare a new package of uh, sanctions. And um, uh, the effect of sanctions is not immediate, but after, after several months. And we can see already uh, some uh, positive results of the sanctions. That means the impact mm-hmm. of, uh, on the uh, Russian economy is already now visible. In the next month, it would be a more, uh, more serious uh, impact to Russian uh, economy. But of course, there are still potential to increase the sanctions. Well, look, um, there is a lot of pessimism around. I mean, finally, we've got quite balanced so far this world, yeah. uh, well, this morning. We've had um, the, the Indian Bank's chairman, very, very positive. Mm. We've had Bob, whose CEO survey is quite negative. Mm. Let's get to Carmine Decibio, who's the CEO of EY. And, and Carmine, for a start, there, there is no truth in the rumour that Deloitte and KPMG are waiting in the wings as well. So it, there was no policy to get all four consultancies out of the way straight away together. But, but in all seriousness, you said to us back in May... You said, look, the world has got to prepare for an economic downturn. Um, And we've just heard from Bob there how he thinks a lot of the CEOs are negative as well. That said, the markets are rebounding. Uh, A lot of the stats coming out on inflation look more benign as well. Is it possible that a lot of this pessimism is backward rather than forward looking? 
I, I think there is still some pessimism that's forward-looking, Steve. It's, it's um, Look, I think we will continue to go through some tough times in the next six to nine months, I would say. Uh, companies, though, are, you know, th- this thing about CEOs aren't prepared and CEOs, you know, aren't, aren't getting their organizations prepared and people aren't used to operating in high inflationary environments. They're, they're doing pretty darn well. I will tell you, we are working right now in the U.S. on 17 restructurings, spins, creating value that have not been publicly announced because they're working on it behind the scenes. And same thing in Europe. We're working on several of these. CEOs and management teams are looking to see how to structure their organization to succeed going forward. And what does that mean? That means taking advantage of value in particular businesses. That could mean a separation. That could mean something where where businesses get combined in a certain way. And that's what we're working on with our clients. So I think the expectation is we'll continue to go through a bit of a tough time in the next six months, but then things should start to rebound. That's very interesting. I think we'll call it 18 with the EY restructuring as well, shall we? Uh, (laughs) But in terms of the difference between what you're seeing in the States and what you're seeing in Europe, I'm as dismayed as ever. I think the US leads the way on this kind of stuff, perhaps because of the nimbleness of its economy as well, the way that corporate restructuring is done as well, sometimes a lot more brutally than in Europe as well. My worry is that Europe is lagging on that front. Are you seeing that or not? No, I will tell you, if there's one word to describe Europe, it's resiliency. I mean, and that's true. If you talk to any of the large investors, they would say that as well. You know, if you think about what Europe's going through right now, I mean, an energy crisis, a war, uh, and Europe just keeps moving along. Uh, Look, the biggest issue facing Europe is a long-term issue. It's a demographics issue. Uh, And that's, frankly, facing the U.S. as well. Uh, Both Europe and the U.S. need more workers. Uh, plain and simple. That that is something that you know. Even today, you 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 will see that um, you know. Even in tougher times, you you see you see these announcements where where uh, companies are laying off people, and so you'll see a big tech company saying we're laying off ten thousand people, right? But they've hired five hundred thousand in the last two years. I mean, this is where where I always wonder: Are they doing this to send a message to the Fed in the U.S. or are they uh, or are they really? You know, are they really doing it to downscale? Steve um, alluded to the plan that you're currently working through, which is to separate audit and consulting. But again, that's not running smoothly, it seems, because there are a number of offices, China, Israel, who are pushing back and saying, actually, we don't really sign off on this. You were talking about how you extract value by corporate restructuring. Is this going to be a problem for you in terms of this plan and the timescale that you are working on if you've got regional offices now who are saying actually come on we'd rather not go down this road yeah let me let me make sure that the, the facts are out there uh jeff so um it's true israel is, is come back and they might not want to be part of this transaction but china is a different story china will be part of this transaction it'll just be part of it in a different way and so we're very confident uh, in terms of how we're moving forward. Uh, we are creating value. As I've said uh, in the press before, you know, our conflicts uh, in our business are great. Uh, and frankly, they're greater for us than they are for some of our competitors because we audit so many of the tech firms, in particular in the U.S., so we can't have alliances with them. And so this does create value both on the consulting side and the audit side. And what I've said on the audit side is there are many audits that go out for bid today that that we or our competitors are not bidding on because they have large or we have large consulting arrangements with it. In this structure, we will bid on all the audits. 
So we feel very confident in terms of the strategic uh, vision on this. And yes, we were delayed a few months in terms of the partner votes uh, and how to move forward. But uh, we're moving forward full steam ahead. We just announced uh, the hiring of a CFO for the new organization, what we call NUCO. Uh, her name's Jamie Miller. She's uh, she comes out of uh, Cargill and out of GE. She was a CFO of GE. Yes, exactly. So she will she will start with us in February, and we're very excited to have her. So you would have seen the comment: retired partners critical of the process, saying it's going to weaken both sides of the business. We just had Bob in a lot of talk about whether they are hunting your talent at this point how do you ring the fence how do you ring the wagons if you like and make sure you hold on to key people through this process because the 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 race to hire talent right now is incredibly hot in your space yeah first of all we're not losing talent at all Uh, in fact we're our attrition rate is is way down versus where it was uh second of all in terms of real talent and at the partner level um why would you ever leave ey if we're going to go through this transaction at this point so this idea of hunting our talent, I think, is a false one. Uh, our people are going to stay. They're going to stay through the transaction. They're excited about both the, the, the assurance side and, and the consulting side. And it's something that I believe our competitors eventually will follow as well. Good to talk with you. Thanks so much for, for, for joining us this morning and telling us about the business sentiment and also about how the deal is going as well. Thank you. Uh, Carmen DeCibio, the CEO of EY. All right, we're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Uh, we have a first on CNBC. We're going to talk to uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange Chairman Laura Cha. Stay with us for that, Juliana. Jeff, thank you. Well, let's take a quick look at markets. U.S. equities are poised to open after the long weekend, and we're looking at a modestly negative start. All three of the majors looking to open lower. Tech-heavy Nasdaq looking to pull back about 65 points or so after the outperformance last week. The tech-heavy index gained about 4.8%, where we had over 2% of gains for the S&P and the Dow. So we'll see if that outperformance continues this week. Earnings taking focus stateside. We've got a number of big names reporting Goldman Sachs, Netflix, Procter & Gamble, just to name a few. And then we've got some Fed commentary to look out for as well before the blackout period begins. So it will be very interesting to see what those Fed officials have to say about the policy path moving forward um, and how they frame the recent inflation report, those December CPI numbers that came through just a little while ago. Turning to Asian markets, the overnight session, we've got um, a bit of red, a bit of green, mixed picture for Asia. You've got the Australian market trading around the flat line, a bit of a pullback for the Shanghai index. Yesterday, we saw some outperformance in the mainland. This morning, we've got the index down about 17 basis points. Now, as the team in Davos has already outlined, we got a raft of Chinese data overnight. GDP, one of the worst growth rates on record. China retail sales beat estimates. So a little bit of a mixed bag when you look there. And then as Steve highlighted, really interesting fact that China's population dropped for the first time since 1961. And then just lastly to flag, Nikkei 225 is trading higher this morning, up 1.2% as the BOJ two-day meeting kicks off. Guys, back over to you. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Juliana, for that. Very excited to speak with uh, Laura Cha, chairman of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Uh, Just as we saw what was a weak print for Chinese growth and possibly the worst growth number we've seen since the end of the Cultural Revolution. Laura, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you for having me. me. Let me just start with you on that number, because what does that imply 
do you think, for your opportunity at the exchange, but also for the the, 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 the likely growth opportunity that Hong Kong itself will have going forward. That's It's not good news this morning. Well, I think um, China, as the border opens up, the economy will grow back. There is a pent-up demand there. There is a necessity. And as China opens up and the economy continues to grow, um, recovering from the last two, three years, Hong Kong will definitely benefit from that as well. With, close, uh, with the closed border for the last three years, there has not been a lot of uh, exchanges, capital, and so on. And I think now we have already seen some turning around. Uh, for Hong Kong as a whole, our market, of course, had some setback in 2022. 2022 was a challenging year for many of us. Uh, but we've seen that the second half of 2022, our IPO uh, was... Uh, four times uh, the amount raised of the first half. And the number of listed companies double those of the first half. We are seeing, seeing a turning around. And as China, China just opened up not that long ago, but as it opened, we would anticipate much more capital flow and therefore, you know, the stimulating financial activities. We seem to be seeing a pivot and a turn away Mm -hmm. from the previous policies pursued in Beijing. And I think you have a close enough relationship with the central government that you could give us some insights here. Are we going to see a broad shift in policy to the private sector as well? Because we're obviously moving away from COVID zero. There is a reopening process going on. You're also a non-exec on the board of Ant. Mm-hmm. And we know the technology sector has had a particularly hard time mm-hmm. in China because of policy mm-hmm. uncertainty and some of the actions taken right. by the central government. Is that going to change? Well, I have no insight whatsoever. But um, from my, my point of view, as uh, someone practicing financially in Hong Kong and on the board of end as well, um, I can see that the government is gradually, there's positive sign of policy relaxation. Um, the, you know, the, the tax sector's re- uh, reform is almost complete. And this is what the central government said. And with that, I think the sentiment towards the tech sector will come back. And that is usually a very strong signal and very strong driver as well for the growth. And Hong Kong benefits from that. And as we are now, you know, a major center, fundraising center for new economy companies. And that would include all the tech companies as well. And yet, Laura, other countries want mm-hmm. a piece of that pie that Hong Kong used to guard so yes. jealously as well. Not, not only the, the, the other major powerhouses, New York, London, but also regionally, Singapore and elsewhere yes. as well. What has Hong Kong got now that those other nations and those other stock exchanges haven't got? Well, I think um, it is what we had in the past. What had made that strong is that we have the Chinese mainland as our anchor. Uh, it will always be pr- providing us with a lots of investor capital and potential issuers. At the same time, we face international and all the, um, the, the, the international standard that we have, um, the rules and th- that give people confidence in our market, you know, the clear uh, uh, reform that we undertake in terms of the market reform and everything that we do with the market, we consult the market. We consult participants, market practitioners. And so whatever we do has market support. And that is what gives investor confidence in the Hong Kong market. And on that, we leverage our China strength. And I think the two is quite a strong combination. Can I ask you about the golden shares in the technology space that the central government is going to take? Because even if there Mm -hmm. is a desire to see the technology sector 
reopening again.、Mm-hmm. The fact that the government has taken these strategic、mm-hmm. stakes means that it will have、uh, a strong backseat role well, in steering strategy. Should should investors be worried about that? Well, I. I'm not,、uh, you know, I, I don't know enough about the golden share that the Chinese government has taken, but it is not unusual. For example, certain in key industries in other markets, for example, in the UK market, the government does have a golden share. And in fact, I think that's where they learned that the Chinese learned the lesson from other jurisdiction, where key strategic sector the government has a golden share. So it is not something new, but I personally don't know enough because it was just announced some time ago. Laura, we have to leave it there. Absolute、okay. pleasure seeing you again. Thank you very much indeed for、uh, seeing CNBC this morning.、Uh, Laura Char, who is the chairman, of course, of the HKEX. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.